beautiful introduction. I just want to start off in prayer first before we hop in. Thank you, Jesus, that you've prepared our hearts and our minds to hear what you have for us today. Lord, let me be a vessel and let your Holy Spirit speak through me in a way that we can understand and then go out and apply what you have for us here tonight. Thank you, Jesus, in your beautiful name. Amen. So tonight, we're going to talk about what it means to have a mind in love with God. But before we do that, I want to tell you a little bit about my favorite movie. Now, my favorite movie, it's a little bit of a cop-out because it's number one on IMDb. So if you already know what that is, it's the Shawshank Redemption. So some of you guys have seen Shawshank. Okay. (laughs) I'm going to talk about one of the characters in the movie. Not one of the main characters, but one of the side characters in the movie. And it's this old guy right here named Brooks Hatlin. Now, Brooks Hatlin has been imprisoned in the Shawshank prison for like, who knows, 50, 60 years. He probably doesn't remember how many years he's been in prison. He's that old. But he's a kind old man. And in this prison where everyone is just having a good time, Brooks is the librarian. He gets to bring the books to different people. Brooks with the Brooks. He gets to bring the books to different people. And that's also how they smuggle things in. So that's besides the point. But Brooks is a good man, and he's got an important position in prison. He's a librarian. People like him. They like that he brings them books, and they like that he helps them smuggle things in. But he's a kind old man in prison. And there's one scene that starts very suddenly with Brooks, very uncharacteristically. He has a knife to the throat of one of the other inmates. And it doesn't make any sense, because Brooks is docile as a mule. He is, he is just kind and gentle, but he's snapped. Something is different about him. And he's muttering crazy things to the people. And they're like, Brooks, like, what are you doing? Hey, man, what's going on? And he says this. They can get him to say, this is the only way they'll let me stay. This is the only way they'll let me stay. And he's muttering that over and over again. And they understand that Brooks is about to be released from prison. His parole is up, and he's about to be free for the first time in many, many years. And he doesn't want to be free. He wants to stay in prison. He's happy in prison. See, he's an important man there. And so he wants to stay in prison. So he wants to kill the other man just so he can stay in prison. And it's very interesting. At first, the paradox seems very odd to us. Like, why wouldn't he want to be free? Why wouldn't anyone want to get out of prison? But the thing is that he didn't know how to survive outside of prison. His way of living and his purpose were there in prison. He was an important man. And Morgan Freeman's character sums up very, very well what is happening to Brooks. Morgan Freeman says this. He says, he's just institutionalized. These walls are funny. First you hate them. Then you get used to them. Enough time passes you get so you depend on them. They send you here for life, and that's exactly what they take. And the thing is, that is exactly what sin does to us. This is what living for ourselves does to us. This is what happens when our thoughts are consumed with our own selfishness. We do it for so long, we're so used to it, and it's all we know that we don't even realize the grip that selfish thoughts have on our life. Even if God miraculously delivers us from the bondages of sin, we still have a tendency to fall right back in unless we give ourselves over to something greater. And then we can find our true purpose in God's will. So what is God's will for us? And how can we know that we're living according to it? That's a question we ask all the time. Like, what's God's will for my life? Where does he want me? 
And so when I don't know the answer to important questions like that, I turn to Scripture. So we should do that too. Let's turn to Romans 12, 1 and 2. And it'll be up on the screen with you. This is Paul's letter to the Romans. He says this. Therefore, I urge you, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. This is your true and proper act of worship. Do not conform to the patterns of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So Paul says here that we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds. And this tells us that knowing God's will originates in our thoughts. I said we were going to talk about a mind in love with God. So we're going to talk about the importance of thoughts. Paul says that when our mind is renewed and transformed, then we can know God's will. So we should be utterly fixated upon what it means to have our mind renewed and transformed. The Bible also says that out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. When you first meet someone, it's really easy to tell what they care about because they're going to tell you. They're going to tell you right away if it's sports, movies, their friends, family, themselves. They're going to talk about it. And you'll be able to tell because out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. So if we are to call ourselves Christians, then we must think about God, and then he will spill out into our conversations as well. One of my favorite writers ever, A.W. Tozer, says this. He says, what comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. And that's a strong statement. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So I'm going to make another statement, and it's going to be even stronger than Tozer's statement. But this one is not my own statement. This is a very old and ancient esoteric statement. We don't even know who originally said it because it's been attributed to dozens of people. And it's kind of like a flow chart of sorts. And it starts off this way. It says that our thoughts lead to our actions, which lead to our habits, which leads to our character, which leads to our destiny. I wish that those letters spelled something out. I'm a fan of acrostics, so... It sounds, it's Hebrew, right? I think it's Hebrew, yeah. Tanakh. <laughs> our thoughts lead to our actions, which leads to our habits, which leads to our character, which leads to our destiny. And so you can see what's at stake here. The battle for our eternal destination is won or lost in our thoughts. That's incredible. That's why Jesus said just to even look at a woman and to think wrong thoughts about her is to commit adultery in your heart. Because Jesus knew the importance of what it was for our thought life. In addition to our own walk with God, our witness towards others is also at stake. It's because when we devalue God towards others, when we have wrong thoughts about him, and we say he's not worth thinking about. If we call ourselves Christians and we don't talk about God or think about him, and people see us, then it hurts our witness. Are these people any different than anyone else? So since we know that God must be the true object of our affection as Christians, and that affection has its origins in our thoughts, we can look to a concept that a British pastor from the 1600s said, and he knew this concept very well. His name was Thomas Chalmers, and he believed that the best way for a person to become transformed by the renewing of their mind was not merely to show someone how unworthy sin is. You meet someone, you're trying to minister to them, it's not the best option to just tell them, hey, what you're doing is dumb. That's not right. 
Even if that's true, Chalmers said this. He says the best way to do that is to not just show them how unworthy sin is, but to show them how worthy Jesus is. And then when they see the worthiness of Jesus, they would naturally throw away all that glitters in this world. And he called this principle the expulsive power of a new affection. The expulsive power of a new affection. And Chalmers said this. He said, if the way to disengage the heart from the positive love of one great and ascendant object is to fasten it in positive love to another, then it's not by exposing the worthlessness of the former, but by addressing to the mental eye the worth and excellence of the latter, that all old things are to be done away and all things are to become new. The only way to dispossess the heart of an old affection is by the expulsive power of the new one. That's a really cool concept, and I've seen this to be true in many areas of my own life. And one of these times is way back when I was like 12 years old. 12-year-old Ryan was very simple. He didn't like talking to people because he was scared of them. (laughs) He liked football and baseball, and he liked video games and books. That's like it. That's got me pegged to a T. And so when I was 12, I got a GameCube, and I wanted Madden. Madden, of course, because I liked football. So I was going to play football video games. It's like the best of both worlds. Those are two of my favorite things. Football video games, of course. So I purchased for $3.99 from Naperville, Illinois, in 2004, this video game. This is John Madden's NFL Football 2002. I remember the theme song. I can can do it right now. I'm not going to do it right now. But later, I'll talk to you. I'll do the theme song. All right, all right. This is like I'm reaching back into the annals of my memory. I'm trying to pull it out. EA Sports in the game. Choose your start running back. Second and yards to try the same again sack. Oh, no, what to do now? Seems you're only inches away from a touchdown. No matter what happens, the choice is on you. This is John Madden, 2002. (laughs) Oh, boy. Mob mentality is very strong, I'll just tell you that. So I played that game so much, as you can tell, I still remember the intro song. I played it so much that I was like 15 seasons into the future. I was playing day and night. The players who were rookies in their first season playing football were like retiring, and the game was spitting out new, randomly generated names of characters. There was a guy, his name literally was right side linebacker number 51, because the game couldn't keep up with how often I played the game. It just had to generate new names, and they couldn't spit out a name. So I just put his name and number. And I remember I was playing the game so much, my family was literally moving. And I was standing in the... Te- like, we didn't have any furniture. I was standing there playing the game like this. My family's moving boxes around me. It's the last thing, and I'm just zoned in. Probably not blinking or eating or anything like that. I loved Madden 2002. And I bought it for $4 because that year was Madden, it was 2004, which meant that Madden 2005 was already out. I was three years behind because I couldn't afford the new game. But that Christmas, I got Madden 2005, which was awesome. It was way better. Ray Lewis was on the cover. And so when I got that, I immediately stopped playing Madden 2002 because why would I play that when I have the new one? And that's what's meant by the expulsive power of a new affection. The same game that I loved so dearly that I ignored my friends and family for, the next day, 
was still the same game, but I had a better one. So I played the better one. And we do the same thing. You get a, a new car and the old car that you had that worked perfectly fine, but it's not new and shiny like this one. This one's got like a, a CD player and stuff and maybe an aux cord. And so I remember like when I moved into a dorm, I was like, dorms are awesome. It's not my parents' house. And then I moved to an apartment. I was like, dorms are terrible. Why would I ever love to live there? I've got like a kitchen now. Like, this is awesome. And then I moved into a house. I was like, apartments are terrible. So you see, it's just the expulsive power of a new affection. And I didn't realize what I was missing when I was playing that old game until I played the newer one, the nicer one. I was content where I was at until I found something better. And this is true for all of us in our lives. We may be fully content with what we have and the way we're living, just like Brooks was content in prison. From the outside perspective, like, why would he be happy in prison? But he didn't know any better. And so once we find something better and we're truly presented with the love of God, we'll sell all that we have to buy that treasure that we found. And you've probably met people who are just really content where they're at. But because you've encountered Jesus, you know there's so much more for them. And they don't even know. And you begin to have a burden stirring in your heart to share Jesus with them. And that's what we do. That's discipleship. We introduce people to Jesus, perhaps for the first time. We don't tell them how wrong they are and everything they're doing isn't worth it. There'll be time for that. And it'll come when we actually show them how worthy Jesus is. C.S. Lewis says it this way in The Weight of Glory. He says, it would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong, but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joy is offered to us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go on making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. That's a brilliant quote, and that really just sums it all up for us. I was making mud pies in a slum, but I didn't know any better. We do this all the time when we don't turn our will over to Jesus. Our minds were meant for so much more than we give them over to. We must have someone, something worthy of our thoughts. Our minds and God were meant for each other. So how do we do this? How do we change the way that we think? How do we transform and renew our minds like it says in Romans? Well, the first key component of a mind in love with God is this. We must think of God often. In Paul's letter to the Colossians, he says, we must set our mind on things above, not on earthly things. Paul understood that loving someone means that we must first start by thinking about them. Love equals thoughts. Love has thoughts about the object of its affection. I've been married for three years now to my lovely wife, and it's been great. But if I just say that I love her and I don't think about her, don't spend time with her. Look at that picture. Look at that face. Her face is great. Look at my face. <laughs> I didn't know what was going on. I'd never seen so many people in front of me before like that. I was terrified. But it was wonderful. And if I said that I loved her and I don't think about her, though, that wouldn't be love. That would be absurd, right? As Christians, we say we love God, but if we don't have thoughts about him, then is it really love? Spurgeon says this. He says, he who often thinks of God will often have a larger mind than the man who simply plods around the globe. The most excellent stuff for expanding the soul 
is the knowledge of Christ and him crucified. And that's so true. We often think that if we just experience more, if we travel the globe, if we see things and taste things and experience more of life, then we'll have an expanded mind, a better knowledge, a better experience. But Spurgeon's right when he just says the best stuff for expanding the soul is the knowledge of Christ and him crucified. The Bible says, as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. We see that time and time again, our thoughts are so utterly important. Thoughts, actions, habits, character, destiny. This means that the soul becomes stained with the color of its thoughts. One way or another, for better or worse. And one way to think of this is to say that a beautiful girl cannot think ugly thoughts for long and remain beautiful. A beautiful girl cannot think ugly thoughts for long and remain beautiful. So here's a question for us. Where do our thoughts go when they're not occupied by the immediate? When you've gone home from school or work, where does your mind wander to? Because these are the things that we will eventually resemble. That's what we said, thoughts, actions, habits. Where do our minds wander to? But God has a right to our thoughts. The Bible says that he hates a heart that devises wicked imaginations. The way that we've thought our whole life is not the way that God intended us to think. We must think of him more often, incorporate him into every little thing that we do. Isaiah 1.18 says this, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, you'll be made as white as snow. It's so beautiful. God says, come, reason together. We'll talk about this. I love you. I've got you. God invites us to come know him more deeply. And this leads to the second point tonight, that we must hunger to know God more. We must hunger to know God more. And I didn't even have to Photoshop this picture. It was already like this. I don't understand. I don't even remember what I typed in to find this. So that's world's fastest man and some of the best processed chicken parts that you can find for $5, right? But I put that up there because I wanted us to know that there's a direct correlation between what you eat and how you perform. You guys all know this. If you've played sports or, or done really anything at all in your life, you know that how you eat before you do the thing is going to determine how you feel the rest of that day or that event or that game. Like if you were right before you're about to play football, per se, Madden 2002, and you're going to eat a couple Big Macs and some chicken nuggets and drink like a big Dr. Pepper, you know that it's not going to be great. Like if your coach would yell at you, like, why did you do that? You're at best... You're just going to be gassed and tired. At worst, you're going to be throwing up that processed meat and cheese and lettuce all over whatever you're doing, you know? Because how you eat will dictate how you perform. So this is true for food, but it's also true for everything that we put into our body. Everything we do with our thoughts, what we watch, what we do with our time, what we surround ourselves with, it all has an influence on us one way or another, whether we like to admit it or not. So when we wake up in the morning, what are we hungry for? If we make up our diets with sports scores and TV shows and social media, we can't help people when they come to us because we won't have anything real to give them. We'll only have poor substitutes. Our call as Christians is to be able to articulate the gospel to anyone that we may encounter. 
And the ability to do that comes from having spent time with God and getting to know him more. In Hebrews, it says this, For the word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. So we must read the Bible. We must spend time in his word. We must feed our mind and renew our thought life with something real, not a substitute. Now, I know what many of you are saying. Many of you are probably saying right now to yourselves, Ryan, I know I need to read the Bible. I've heard that my whole life. I get it. Cool. I've tried. I just can't do it. I can't focus. It's hard to sit and read. Or even I don't like reading. It's just not my thing. But Winky Prattney tells us this. He says, if a baby isn't hungry, it means one of two things. It's either sick or it's dead. And when we say I don't like to read, it's like saying I don't like to eat. And it means we're either sick or we're dead. It's like saying, I don't want to feed myself with things that really matter. I'd rather feed it with this other stuff. And it just won't suffice. You guys know, like, like jack-in-the-box tacos. Like, surely for two for a dollar, there's no way that that's really meat in there. Is it, what is it, like soy? Is it meat substitute? Like, they can't surely give you meat. And it doesn't really taste like meat, but it kind of tastes good for some reason. I don't know. It's not, Taco Bell's like up here, Jack in the Box is like down here. Oh, we got some sinners here, it's all right, repent. <laughs> but here's the thing, what we're paying for is that it's a cheap substitute. And they can easily sell it because we don't know the difference or we don't care or we don't care if it's not the real thing. But that's what we do when we, we mindlessly scroll through social media because we're bored and then claim we don't have time to read the Bible. That's what we do when we binge watch Netflix and play Xbox all night and then wonder why we're so tired during the day. It's because we weren't hungry for the right things. We settled for substitutes. When we do that, we're settling for substitutes when we really need the real thing, the Word of God, and there is no substitute for the Bible. Even if you're not naturally inclined to like reading, you must decide for yourself whether God is worthy of you cultivating a love for reading. Because some of the finer things in life require cultivation. They require work. Many could say it this way, that discipline turns drudgery into desire. Discipline turns drudgery into desire. We need to have minds in love with God for our own sake but also for our community's sake so that we can be a better picture of Christ to one another. And this is the final point here. We must share our godly thoughts with others. By the way that we talk, we want to share Jesus to those around us. We don't want to hide the team that we're playing for. When people meet us, what's the first thing they notice about us? We want, yeah, we want Jesus to be present in every conversation that we have. We said earlier it's easy to tell what people care about the moment you meet them. So we must share with others the one that we care about. First Peter 3.15 says this, Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. That strong language, always be prepared. We must always be prepared. We must feed ourselves by reading the Bible and having godly thoughts so that we're prepared to share with others 
And that's what we do what we do. That's it. And as we close, I want to read one more scripture. Philippians 4.8. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Paul, he knew the importance of our thoughts. He says, think about such things. He doesn't even say, do these things, because he knows that if we have the right thoughts, they will lead to the right actions. Throughout all of his letters, he has stressed the importance of these godly thoughts. He learned from Jesus' example that our thoughts have eternal ramifications. That's kind of terrifying. My thoughts have eternal ramifications. We must give our thoughts to the Lord, holding every thought captive so that he can renew our minds and we can no longer conform to the pattern of the world. In this day and age, our biggest obstacle is distractions. The devil would love for us to focus on anything other than Jesus and the promises in his word. If we have something that's distracting us or causing us to sin, we must get rid of it. Don't be afraid to make radical changes in your life in order to give God room to grow. You won't regret it. Here tonight, I want us to begin to think of God more often. Spending time in prayer and reading scripture, I want us to ask for a deeper hunger for more of him. And if you're someone who doesn't like reading, ask for discipline. Ask for focus. Ask God to change your heart. Put your phone on, do not disturb, and and get alone with God in the Bible. He's eagerly waiting for you to come reason together with him. If you know someone who does a great job of reading scripture and spending time with God, ask them for help. That's what this community is all about. We can help cover each other's weaknesses. And lastly, let God ask for an outward focus so that we can naturally share his word with those we meet each and every day. And as we close, I just want us to to respond to the Holy Spirit that's calling us to give our thoughts and our hearts fully to him.